Well, welcome everybody to this uh, episode of Bell's Brief Chats, uh, which stands for British Educated Life Scientists. Uh, Bell's is a unique purpose-led initiative that is strengthening connections with highly accomplished, well-connected and influential British life scientists working abroad outside the UK. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Gillian Cannon, who is presently Head of Commercial Innovation for Roy Van Sciences in New York. Welcome, Gillian. Thank you, Nigel. Great to be here. Well, let's, let's just leap straight into it in terms of first your journey. Um, and you grew up in Tynemouth. Take it on from there. <laughs> yeah, so, so Tynemouth, for people who don't know, is, is just south of Newcastle in the northeast of England. And I actually was born in the house where I ended up living for uh, the next 20 years, um, just because of a, a, a delay in getting to the hospital. I was actually born at home and that, that's where I lived. So that was fantastic. And, uh, you know, it just provided, I think, a, a great place to grow up. Absolutely beautiful uh, surroundings. We, we have the, the, the river, the beaches. And the good, the good thing we say about Tamath is the weather is so bad that the beaches remain beautiful because nobody goes to them. So a really great place to grow up. And um, tell us a bit about your, your family life, brothers and sisters. Yeah, so um, I have two brothers and uh, I, my, my father comes from a very large family, all of whom sort of live, lived around where we were. So he had six sisters, four of whom lived very close to us and he was very close to his sisters. So of course I had a lot of cousins growing up, which was which was fantastic. Um, it, it was it was very nice having family around, and in fact it became a really important part of our life as, as I got older. So uh, sadly we we lost my mom when I was about eleven years old. So my dad was a widower, and his family just kind of swooped in and, and took care of everything. His sisters would come to our house, you know, twice a week, do the laundry, do the cooking, take care of us. So it really, for me, created this massive stability of having a family around us. And the other thing I kind of took from that is there was never any conversation about what needed to be done. There was a problem and people just came in and solved it. There was no discussion or no sort of what should happen. It was just like practical action. Something needs to be done. We need to do it. Let's just get on and do it. And that, to be honest with you, I've sort of carried with me as a kind of a philosophy that it's very easy to look in on problems and, and debate them and discuss them. But actually getting in there and just doing things is often way more important than it is offering, you know, advice or suggestions to people. So, you know, that created for me a, a lot of stability in my home life. And though it was obviously very sad to lose my mother, we were very fortunate to have that extended family around us. So ultimately, my two brothers and I were the, the only three of our entire extended family who ended up going to university. And, and part of the driver of that, honestly, was still my mother's influence. My, my mother had said to my father as we were growing up, I really would love our kids to go to university. And my father, bless him, if nothing else, knew how to take instructions. That was what was going to happen. So, you know, for, for him, university was just he didn't understand it. None of our family had ever been. Nobody really had any engagement with the universities. But he had this, you know, instruction from my mother. So it was always set up that that's what was going to happen. And he was going to do what was ever necessary to do that. And, and what he had to do to do that was a lot because he worked in the shipyards. He worked exceedingly hard, but, you know, was, you know, not, not getting massive levels of income from that. So we, we really had to manage around that. And he was willing to make whatever sacrifices were necessary to get us to university and get us through university. And, and you went to study um, biochemistry at Edinburgh. Um, was that because you just developed an affinity for science in school? Yes, I think the way the UK school system works is quite interesting when I compare it to here in the US where we are now. You sort of get very narrow very early. So when you take your O-level subjects, you start to narrow down what you do. And then when by the time you take your A-levels, you have mm -hmm. already decided the rest of your life. And for me, science was just something that I found fascinating. I also, by the way, loved English and English literature. I would read anything I could get my hands on. Every Saturday, I'd be at the library getting books out, and it didn't matter what the topic was, I would just read it. And my dad was the same. He, he loved to read. You know, knowledge was really valued in our family. 
So I, I was sort of very sad to leave behind the poetry and English literature when you had to make your A-level decisions, but science was ultimately what I was really, really passionate about. So that sort of led me into doing biochemistry at the University of Edinburgh. And Edinburgh was my choice because, you know, I needed to leave home. My dad needed me to leave home. I needed to leave home, but I didn't want to be too far away. He was at that point by himself. I was the third child. So it was the right distance to be away that we weren't on top of each other, but we could see each other regularly if we needed to, because we were really close, really good friends. And it was nice to be able to retain that relationship by not having too much distance in it. Now, any thought of a scientific career or did you, were you decided by the time you'd finished at Edinburgh, right, I'm not going to do further studies right now, um, and you jumped into industry, was that through the milk round or had uh, Merck made in touch with you uh, while you were at college? It was through the milk round, but honestly, you make it sound much more logical than it actually was. So <laughs> I loved university. I absolutely loved every minute of it. This whole concept of you go somewhere and the only thing you do is study the subject you're interested in. Even today, I find that fabulous. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, we'll talk a little bit later about my PhD, but it was the same with the PhD. For me, it's a luxury to just sit and study something that you actually really cared about. So I would say for the three years that I was going through Edinburgh University, I never even thought about what I was going to do at the back end. I was just enjoying every moment of studying biochemistry and not really even thinking about what I would do with it. Now, when the milk round started and I started engaging with companies, it was then that I started seeing the possibilities of what you could do with a degree. I had thought about doing a, a scientific PhD at that time, but I was really ready to sort of get into the workforce. And, you know, I referenced earlier that none of my cousins had gone to university, so their families were all benefiting from having kids living at home, paying rent, you know, giving money back to their parents. My poor dad was still paying out for us at that time. So I, I was sort of eager to get in the workforce and start contributing in some positive way. And as I went through the milk round, what became very apparent to me was there's careers in science where you're not at the lab uh, pouring things into test tubes. So my, my final year project was around Calmodulin. And we were preparing tiny amounts of calmodulin into these, these test tubes. And I just kept thinking to myself, really? This, <laughs> this, is, this is not the most exciting thing I've ever done. And, and the milk round exposed me to all these other jobs you could do that were akin to science, but not being at the bench. My, my husband went on to stay at the bench, do his PhD, all of that good stuff. But I really wanted to do something that didn't involve preparing small amounts of things into test tubes. Yeah. So you joined Merck um, were, were, were there other farmers that you were being recorded by or looking at or what was it about Merck that made you decide that was where you're going to start and then you leapt in and actually worked on the product side with Zocor. Yeah so two reasons I ended up at Merck one of them absolutely ridiculous and the other fairly sensible. The absolutely ridiculous one which you will laugh at is as is, is you're is sitting in the careers room you sort of can go through the different application forms at the milk round for that you put in in order to get your interviews. And I was sort of scanning through those. The Merck application form was on really heavy stock, high quality paper. The minute I touched it, I felt it. And I thought, you know what, if somebody's putting that much effort into getting an application form of such quality, they, they really sound like a good company. That's absolutely ridiculous and nobody should use that as, as a process of choosing, but it's what made me fill out that form because I'm very tactile. I love the way things feel and, and touching that form just was something for me. So I put the application in, but the second more sensible reason is Merck really accelerated my interview process and they had an offer out to me well in advance of anybody else. They, yeah. they, they brought me very quickly in the office. They, they, they had the conversations with me. You know, we went through the all the various different screening processes there and the speed at which they offered it sort of as a student makes you feel good about that somebody cares enough to move this process along quickly and want me to be part of their organization. And that was very compelling. And you add that with, I, I was just coming up to my finals. It was kind of nice to say, right, job done. I have a job. Now I can actually figure out how to get through my final exams without worrying about that. So, you know, that that helped as well. And had you met Andrew by this time, or did that come later? I'm sorry, could you repeat that? We just uh, yeah, that. Did, did you, had you met Andrew by then? Did you meet him at college, oh, yeah. or was it later? Yeah, no, we met first year of university. 
Um, I wouldn't say the our first meeting was a marriage made in heaven, uh, <laughs> but we got to know each other and, and eventually fell in love. And we actually started dating after we le left university, but we were good friends all the way through university. So he, at that point, was looking to move in to do his PhD, and, and I moved into actually working. And so Merck moved you into this product management, and then suddenly came this opportunity clearly to move to the US with them. Um, big decision for the two of you? Well, I, I would say the whole process was actually really quite interesting because I, I, I joined Merck on the management trainee program. And as part of that program, you have to work as a sales representative for a while. And yeah. Because that's the business, right? That's the income generating part of the business. And that was actually really quite interesting for me because I, I graduated with a with a good degree and people kept saying to me, you're going to be a sales rep? Like it was the worst thing in the world. And, and I just couldn't really understand that because it, it's, it's, it's a part of that business and a very important part of that business. And I'll tell you, honestly, it's probably the best thing I did because I really learned the business from the bottom up. So yeah. that was an eight-month process. And then I moved into what we refer to as head office in, in the south of England. And it was just a whole series of events took place that a number of people had left and there was openings and they had two products to launch that I ended up, you know, just being in the right place at the right time to go through two product launches very, very quickly within three years. And that's an experience that a lot of people spend years getting. And suddenly mm -hmm. I, had, I had just launched two products. Now, what I will also tell you is with the... Uh, with the arrogance of youth, I actually thought I'd done everything possible at that point. <laughs> I thought I'd, I'd cracked this business, right? So <laughs> the decision to move to the US was much more around, there's nothing left for me to do here. Now I look back at that and think, how naive was I? But that was the driver of my desire to go to the US, which is, you know, I'd like to do something else and I've done everything there is to do in the UK. And Merck, of course, being an American company was a much, much bigger organization in the United States. So when I came to visit Merck here and just, I mean, it was like being on a university campus. It was absolutely amazing. There was departments I'd never heard of. I mean, it was fantastic. And Andrew was just finishing his PhD at that time. Now, Andrew had thought about doing his PhD in the US and the advice he had got is do your PhD in the UK and then move to the US for your postdoc. So the timing was just perfect for both of us. He yeah. was looking for a stock. I'd sort of, you know, already conquered the world. So I was looking for another piece of the world. And, and, and that was the, the sort of decision. So in a sense, it was a really easy decision for both of us. And what was even more easy is because we had not long been students, we sort of had three suitcases to pack up and that was our life, life belongings. So it was a very simple move to just get on a plane and fly here. Yeah. And um, as you moved through the Merck, um, you, you obviously went to New Jersey. And so you experienced all the major Merck facilities, uh, West Point, uh, Railway, White House Junction. Uh, and you moved through what broadly you'd probably call commercial roles. You worked in product management, you worked in market access, neuroscience area, specialty products, and ultimately um, helped with the setting up of Merck Via Ventures. Um, 24 years, it's a long time at, a, at the company, and at some stage you must have decided, right, we're going to have a family. Did you take time out to have that family and then go back to Merck or work right through it? No, I worked right through it, and I even added some complexity into it. So, you know, working for one company for a long period of time is absolutely fabulous because you know a lot of people in the organization, you know how to get things done, you know how to reach out to people. But there's downsides. The downsides are the people that you know are the people who work in that organization. And in that era, people would join Merck and, and stay forever. I mean, Merck was a, 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 and still is, a fantastic company to work for. So I was starting to feel, I, I love Merck very much. I don't want to work anywhere else, but my, my world's a little bit smaller than I want it to be just in terms of my experiences and my, my, my networks. Mm -hmm. And so I actually made the decision to do a PhD. And that, that was the, the sort of first major decision I made at Merck, because I felt that would provide me access to both greater learning, but also to other people, not just in my industry, but in the healthcare industry, because, you know, we deal with hospitals and physicians, but we do it from sort of our perspective. And I really wanted to understand other people's perspectives better. So I actually decided to uh, go ahead and do a PhD. Now, it was interesting, because as you point out, I was on the business side of Merck, not the scientific side of Merck. 
Nobody on the business side of Merck had ever done a PhD before whilst working for Merck. Yeah. We had lots of scientists in it, but never a business person. So when I went to see my boss and explained, this is what I want to do, and I was very willing to take a prolonged leave of absence to do it, I, I would say I was met with not a favorable response initially, because the, the response was kind of like, why? I mean, what? why mm -hmm. would you want to do that? You're doing well in business. What, why do you want to step out of this? So I went back to my office. I called my husband and said, I'm, I'm probably going to have to leave to do this PhD because I know that's what I want to do. Um, but that's OK. You know, we, we, we can do that. That evening, my boss called me at home and he apologized for being so sort of surprised by my proposition. And his, he basically said, look, we do this for scientists. We're going to do it for you. We don't have a way to do this, but we'll figure it out and we are going to support you through this. So, you know, when you work for a company, there's certain things that happen that make you feel really good about the company. That yeah. was one of them. They had yeah. no pathway, but they were willing to find it. So I actually stepped out of Merck in, uh, well, I, I started doing the PhD part-time in, in 1994. And no, that, was a, that was at Temple, wasn't it? Yeah, and yeah. then at, at Temple University, yeah. So I had to step out for a one-year sabbatical because I had to do my teaching and all of the other sorts of stuff. But I initially started doing it as a, as a part-time process. So in 1996, I took my one-year leave of absence in order to, to um, you know, get through all my various different um, requirements. But I also got pregnant almost immediately at that time. So now I'm doing my PhD, I'm on a sabbatical and I'm pregnant. So, so that was the sort of starting of my family, which again was a little more complicated than it, it sort of could have been, but that was fine. So I actually delivered the twins that year during my uh, one year leave of absence and then went back to work the following year and then continued doing my PhD part-time. I then got pregnant a second time and I thought, I really need to get this PhD done. It's, it, this is a lot of work with two, because my, my, my first children were twins. So this is going to be a lot of work with a third baby now. So I really powered on in, in that final year to try to get the PhD finished. The good thing about being pregnant is it, for me, it was very difficult sleeping. So that just provided an opportunity to stay up late at night and, and do whatever work I needed to do. So I concluded the PhD, I, I got it all written up. And as you know, in those days, we, we had like the 2.2 inch margin you had to have and you, you, you know, you had to have certain placements of everything. It's not like that now, it's all automated, but there we were out with our rulers measuring it. So I got it all done, I got it bound. I went to the FedEx box, dropped it in the FedEx box and I gave birth to my third, my third child that afternoon. So it worked out perfectly. <laughs> And then you decided to, to leave Merck and go to Otsuka, a Japanese company, presumably working for them in the States. Uh, and then on, after that, obviously, to then to UCB. I presume that UCB meant there was a commute going on down back and down to Atlanta, where you were based. Um, those experiences valuable for you? exceedingly valuable so I would say from a professional perspective leaving Merck was one of the hardest things that I ever did and the decision point for me was look I've worked here you know 20 plus years I'm either going to stay for the rest of my life or this is the time to step out and we'd just gone through the merger with Shearing Plow so the company was starting to change and not in a bad way it was just starting to change a little bit and it's sort of, it's, it's a now or never. If I don't leave now, I will be so murkized that it will be really difficult to leave in the future. Yeah. And around that time, just spontaneously, Otsuka reached out to me. Now I live in Princeton and Otsuka is based in Princeton. And I'm not saying that that was the decision point, but it was very nice not to be commuting an hour to work every day. And yeah. I had always actually wanted to work for a Japanese company. I'd done a lot of business development with Japanese companies and I actually just really loved the culture of a Japanese company, how they think about things and their, their processes. And so it, when, when the opportunity came up to work for a Japanese company, I, I was absolutely thrilled to be able to do that. And it was quite interesting for me because we'll talk a little bit later on about what it's like today for people to move to the US. But one of the things that kind of struck me as I, I came to live in the United States was there was a lot of things that I had to understand that I didn't understand, right? It, it's just, there's a case of saying, I don't know why this culture or this, this group of people think this way. It doesn't make sense to me, but they do. And, and I just have to accept some of that. And, and that actually made it much easier to go into work at a Japanese company than some of my American colleagues had in their experience, because I was already primed to know that I didn't know 
uh, everything that 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 would be going on there and some of it I would never understand so I'll yeah. give you an example in the Japanese culture this concept of you know teamwork and individual we would draw a line and we'd put teams at one and an individual at the other that's not true in Japan it's a much more sort of embedded concept that the individual and the team are are, are one thing and I can't even explain to you how that can be the case because in my mindset they're two very different things the reality is that's just how it is in the Japanese culture. And we have to stop trying to unpick it and figure out why. And we just have to say, that's the way it is. And we have to operate knowing that that's the way it is. And because I've had all these experiences moving to the US of not really understanding fully the sort of thinking behind some of the things because I never grew up here, it made it a lot easier for me to just settle into the Japanese culture and feel really comfortable there. So I absolutely loved my time at uh, Otsuka. But sadly, the, the president of Otsuka, who was a big driver in my decision to move there, unfortunately passed away and the company was changing a little bit. And it was at that point I decided to go work at UCB. And UCB, of course, is a European pharma company. And I had also wanted to have experience working for a European pharma. So that provided a, a great opportunity for me. So I enjoyed that time, but I would say it was a pretty significant drain doing the commute from Princeton down to, to Atlanta. So I did that for a couple of years. I, I, I enjoyed it, but really it was, we weren't going to move to Atlanta at that stage. And it really became, you know, we, we need to make a decision what we're going to do here. And we decided to stay here in Princeton. Yeah. And then, uh, so that was 2017, I think. So you um, set up Castle Biotech. Um, and worked on NO-based uh, chemistries for cardiovascular and inflammatory. Just tell us a little bit more about that, uh, because clearly it wasn't that long before Roy Vant and the Vants came calling. Well, so that that was a uh, we, we still are working uh, at Castle Biotech. Um, that that was really driven by a patent that myself and my husband had applied for, and actually we we got it granted last year for for some of the sort of new findings and understandings around exercise physiology and how we can actually use um, different ways of assessing what an individual needs to do to stay healthy, both from a medical perspective as well as a, a athletic fitness perspective. So we had filed this patent and we were very eager to, to make something of it. So we, we started the company where we started doing clinical trials and, and looking at opportunities to sort of commercialize this product. And we are still going with that. So that, that, that hasn't gone away. That's something my husband and I do sort of on the side as it were, whilst we're both doing our day jobs. But we, we very much enjoy the opportunity to both work together, but also to find you know, new and different ways that we can actually capitalize on what, what we found in the patent. And then, so you, then you join Royvant, which has taken a very different tack than most companies in the way it builds things, a, a family of companies. Just tell us about the experience and, and your current role there as well. I know you've been in one of the vans with Alivant, but now you're back at um, the, main, the main shop. So I absolutely love the Royvant culture. It's, it's a very different uh, way of doing pharmaceutical commercialization. And the Vance was set up about eight years ago to actually look at all the inefficiencies in healthcare and figure out solutions to them. That, that was sort of the driving force of it. What it means is we don't do anything because it's been done that way. We do it because it's the right thing to do. So, so every decision point is sort of challenged and say, is this the right thing to be doing? Now, having worked in, in big pharma companies for many years, there tends to be just a way that people do things. And, and whilst you can push and challenge a little bit, there's also a, a sort of dynamic of this, this is what we do, this is our business. Whereas for Royvan, it was completely different. Everything from the start was to say, is this the right thing to do? Does this make sense? How do we build an organization where we have no silos, where we have people talking to each other all the time, both in the development and the commercialization phase? So it just created an environment which is one that I'm much more comfortable with uh, in terms of the speed at which we can get things done and, and you know, sort of the, the ambition and the aspiration to actually create value very, very quickly for both shareholders and for patients. So I started working in Alavant, which was all about developing new approaches to commercialization. And consistent through my career has been a very strong focus on the use of data for commercialization. 
And that's sort of what you get, I think, from putting a scientist in a commercial role. We, we mm -hmm. think a little bit differently from sort of the standard business thinking and can apply a lot of the uses of data and a lot of things that we do actually in the clinical phase. We can apply a lot of that in the commercial phase in terms of the thinking. So I'd always been passionate about data. I was the first one to use claims data in the United States for uh, commercialization of a product. We did a lot of utilization of data to do a very uh, sort of efficient launch of, of a drug at Otica. So that was just really my space and my interest. And Roy Vant had been speaking to me for years about you know, what I was doing, what I was thinking about, how I was approaching things, because their, their whole model is about you know, creating networks, interacting with people, and if it's right, bringing people on board, but if it's not still maintaining those relationships. And eventually they sort of enticed me into the organization. And again, that's something we'll talk about a bit later, but the power of networks and relationships in a mutually beneficial way is really, really important, I think, in our industry. And, you know, I reflected earlier that when I worked at Merck, I felt I only ever talked to Merck people. And, you know, that was my driver for a PhD. And I think part of my learnings over the years has been that, you know, that there's things to be learned from everybody. And, and there's, there's ways of helping each other that is mutually beneficial, that has no negative impact on the business whatsoever. We don't have to hide away and not speak to people. And, and those things can create enormous value for us from a, from a sort of development perspective of ourselves, but also from an outcome perspective. And um, now, now sort of stepping into the whole, you know, the UK end of this, um, was it mostly family trips? Was there any business that you were starting to do with the UK while you were at Merck or any of the other companies you've worked with? Um, or was it just family trips back to see cousins and other, other family and, and make sure your kids who were growing up as Americans understood a little bit about their heritage? So I would say it went in phases for us. When we first moved to the United States, I was so happy to be here that the trips home were just sort of visit family and then get the heck back. You know, I, I was so happy to to be living in the United States that whilst I did go back and forth for visits, I, I didn't really engage very much in, in the UK. We went through the second phase where we had kids. And, and at that point, I was working as a sales director for Merck. There was really no business reason to go back to the UK. Mm -hmm. I had three young kids. So there was, there, was, there was no real good travel plan for traveling with them. So whilst they were younger, we didn't really do much. And then when they got to be a little bit older, I finished my PhD. I'd gone back to Merck. I was working in a global role at that point. So there was business opportunities coming up. And there was also exactly as you reflect a desire to have the children more engaged in knowing what their cultural heritage was, meeting their family, spending time with their family. So at that point, we started going back to the UK every summer for two or three weeks. We actually rented student accommodation at the University of Edinburgh, which is where I had been a student, because when you have three young kids, it turns out student accommodation is brilliant because there's nothing to break. So it worked out perfectly. You know, it's just like a, a simple house with five forks, five spoons, five plates, and everything's unbreakable. So we spent a lot of time staying in the student accommodation. And it was then that I started thinking about, you know, engaging more with the University of Edinburgh and, you know, what, what could we do together? And, you know, what were the opportunities for alumni to, to work with the university? So that was kind of the start of that phase of the journey, which is really what I've continued because most of my roles since then have had a global element. So there's been business reasons to get there as well as sort of personal reasons to be there. So that's the, so that's the root of your um, desire to give. And I'm not to give back you very very gently admonished me for using the word it's not giving back it's giving um that was the start of that that uh, process for you yeah but you know the, one of the things i i would reflect on is it, it it wasn't particularly easy so you know institutions like universities are they're not necessarily well set up to figure out what exactly people can do. So whilst they're very eager and enthusiastic to have alumni engaged and involved, they don't necessarily know how to actually do that. And it was quite interesting because I, I was talking to my husband about this the other day and I was saying, you know, when we first moved to the US, it, this sounds very simple, but your, your expats will recognize this. You've got to order a sandwich when you move to the US. 
and people will say to you, what do you want on that? And it's like, I literally have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know the options. I don't know what I can choose from. Same as it's, same as ordering coffee. <laughs> exactly. It's like, I don't, I don't even understand the question, to be honest with you. You know, so it, it was actually a little bit like that when you start working with the university, because they would say to you, well, what do you want to do? And it's like, I, I don't know what's available. I don't know the options. So I don't know how to answer that. And, mm -hmm. and this is, this is now real work, right? This is not just expressing, I would like to do something. This is then thinking about what do I have to offer and, and where does that fit into what the university is thinking about and doing? So I would say I was probably in conversations with the University of Edinburgh for four or five years before we came up with something that I could do that would be useful. You don't want to just throw yourself in and say, I, I'll do this if it doesn't make any positive value to the university. So, you know, maintaining those relationships, getting to know people, talking to a lot of people, seeking out ways is what was absolutely necessary before I started to do something that I considered was very productive within the university. And I think that to me was the biggest challenge because over those four or five years, I kept thinking, is anything gonna happen here? We're gonna find anything that's useful because I know I have something to offer and I know they have needs, but we just haven't been able to mesh them yet. And mm -hmm. so when I think about, you know, if I was to give advice to anybody, it would be you just have to stick at that for a relatively long period of time till you find something that works. Now, I would also say I think the universities are getting better at this now, that they're, they're starting to realize the value in the alumni community so that they're becoming more open and engaging with, with their individuals and, and trying to figure out with them how to do things. But it's definitely work on the part of us, which feels like, Perhaps it shouldn't be. You shouldn't have to try this hard in order to volunteer. But the reality is that that's what it is. And I really wanted to do it. So I was very persistent around it. Yeah. And you obviously went back to your roots as well and reached out to Newcastle to see what you could do there. And part of that was to honour your father. Yes. Yeah, so the Newcastle experience was very different for me because my father was turning 90. And, and the question we all had is, what do you buy a 90-year-old who has absolutely everything he wants or needs and has had every experience he wants or needs? And what I decided to do was to, to take out three scholarships at the University of Newcastle. Myself and my two brothers were supported through university in the name of my father. So I set up a, a Gordon Cannon scholarship. And that was to really both acknowledge and thank him for all of the things that he had done to help us get through university. So I reached out to Newcastle because he lived in timeout. So Newcastle was a lot closer in terms of, you know, both physical and emotional connection. Mm -hmm. And Newcastle were absolutely fantastic at, at creating, you know, the, the right scholarships for him, at providing advice to me about, you know, how we should set up those scholarships. And as a part of that, I started spending a lot more time with the folks at Newcastle University. And, and sort of feeling a good connection about what they were trying to do. Newcastle is very much a university of the Northeast for the Northeast. It, it does a lot of good within the city in which it operates. And, and, and I just saw that as something that I really would like to get involved and help with. So they at that time were thinking about a fundraising campaign. They wanted me to sit on their board of advisors for the fundraising campaign, which I was very happy to do uh, because I'm very happy to, to sort of um, talk about Newcastle University and what it does and the benefits I think people can get from engaging either financially or in a mentorship role to help students there. And a big driver of that also for me was, as, as you know, from the conversation we've just had, the turning point in my life was going to university. That changed everything. It opened my eyes to possibilities, to relationships, to opportunities that I would never have known about had I not gone to university. And that set me on this trajectory, which has been both wonderful, fun, and, and for me, exceedingly productive. And, and I would like that opportunity to be made available to as many people as possible. And if you kind of look at what happens today, you know, we, we have students who, who, still ha uh, who, who now have to pay tuition. I'm not sure my father would have been comfortable with that. I think he would have been saddling, he would have felt he was saddling us all with a debt that we would never pay off. And, and so the purpose of the scholarships is to say, if you have people in that role, then we have an opportunity here to help with that. And, and, and I feel great about that because I feel I was able to get massive benefits from university and I'd like other people to have the same privilege. So that's the work with the two universities. Um, but 
uh, you, you've started obviously a, a portfolio sort of career on the side of working with Royvant, but you're sitting on boards and um, were these just opportunistic as in the companies came to find you or the organizations or did you have some sort of set purpose in mind right I, I want either geographically or from what they were doing because you you quite a broad portfolio you you're working with a Delaware based company called Veritas Data Research you're working with Corset Therapeutics in the Bay Area Affibody in Sweden um Interesting choices, accidental or not? Well, it's actually a really interesting question. So, um, you know, I, I started the whole sort of board thinking about eight years ago. And, you know, one of the things we'll come back to constantly as we as we talk is this concept of networks and, and maintaining connections with people. And, and so I had uh, been talking to actually a colleague who was the general manager at Sanofi, and she had asked me if I'd ever thought about boards because she'd started, you know, engaging with boards and she was very eager to get more women involved with boards. And, and I really hadn't. And I thought about it and I thought about what I might have to offer. And I felt pretty strongly that I would actually like to be involved with European boards because I think that there's a lot of dominance of, of science in, in the US, but I think there's some great things going on outside of the US that it would be really excellent to be able to move along a little bit. So that was really the first board Afibody that I got involved with. But where that came from was my, my colleague at Sanofi introduced me to a recruiter in the UK. For three years, I met with a recruiter. Every time I went over for Thanksgiving, we'd have coffee, we'd chat. Uh, there was things that I could do for her. There was things that she was interested in doing for me. So we developed a relationship that over time led to the Afibody opportunity. And I think that that's, for me, being so important that all of these opportunities that you've just listed came from somebody that I knew, connecting yep. me to somebody else, connecting me to somebody else. And, and I want to be very clear on my feelings about this. This is not something that we should all be recipients of, right? This is something that we should all be doing, right? The whole purpose of this is, is to be helped and to help. And that's what networking is all about. So when I'm mentoring my, uh, my younger female uh, colleagues, I'll, I'll say to them, I know it feels like you might not have time, but, but the networks are really important. And, and you need to have a network before you need to have a network, right? By the time yeah. you want to ask people for something, it's too late. Because nobody likes to be connected with a request. I want, yeah, I would like you to do this. But when people get to know you and you work together and, and you, you do things to help each other, then it creates this environment in which good things happen. And all of my board opportunities have come through those, those sort of networking opportunities that I've really been diligent about, diligent, diligent about keeping up. You know, there's times you get home from work or you're in the middle of your work day and you think, I just can't be bothered. And, and I would sort of say to myself, once a week, I'm going to reach out to somebody and connect. Just one day a week, I'm going to send one email or make one call. You do that over 10 years, you have a very robust network. But again, yeah. it's work. This does not come easily. It's work, and, and you need to work hard to maintain these relationships. I, do, I want to, um, to to dwell a little bit on um, our future health in a, in a minute, because that's such an interesting project that I think it would be good to inform our audience about. But um, do you think the experience of, of young British educated life scientists, professionals um, who get recruited to work abroad these days is the same as, as it was further back? Or do you think it's changed? There's some things that are the same and there's some things that are different. So the things that are different is when I moved here, um, I flew to the United States. It was the second time in my life I had flown and I was relocating to live in the United States. I'd only ever been on a plane once before. This was my second time on a plane. Everything here looked different, felt different. The food was confusing. The, the, the way people engaged was confusing. Everything was different. Now, you can look at different and say it's bad or it's good. It's just different and you just have to sort of settle into it. I think that has changed because with social media, with, you know, TV, with podcasts, radio, whatever, people are exposed to much, much more than they were. So, you know, for example, when I moved here and had a bagel, I'd never even seen a bagel in my life. I didn't know what one was. You can buy them in London now, right? So there's nothing that's kind of so unique to a place. So I think that's very different. And I think people will probably find in that sense the move easier. 
I remember when, when I was talking to, to the Merck folks, I was the first person or one of the first people to move into Merck domestic in the US. Normally people went to the global organization. I went to the US organization because I really wanted to have US experience. And they weren't used to bringing in people from outside. So if not the first, I was one of the first people to actually do that. But when we were talking about looking for housing, they said to me, well, do, do you want a townhouse? Well, a townhouse in London is very different from a townhouse in Pennsylvania. It's not the same thing. So I didn't really know what they were talking about. So those things I think are different now. I think we have much more sophisticated uh, consumers of culture because of everything that that's shared. What is the same is the concept that I referenced earlier, which is you have to understand that there will be things you don't understand. And when you come to somebody else's country, you don't fight against those things, right? So I don't walk in the United States and say, yeah, 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 public health system's a disaster. You should have socialized medicine. You walk in here and you say, this system is this system. And there's a reason why people have it. And there's a reason why people feel very positive or not positive about it. In the same way that I wouldn't try to sell an American person on the NHS. There's fabulous things about the NHS. And there's also things that are challenging in terms of wait lists and everything else. But we've grown up with certain things. So we have certain views on that. That doesn't change for somebody moving here today. And you have to, I think, try to be as open-minded as you can about the differences and just embrace them rather than trying to create something that fits more into what you're used to. Yeah. Well, it's a very nice segue into the NHS. Our future health, uh, you got asked, I presume, um, asked whether you would be uh, interested in going on the board. What led you to say yes? Uh, and is it as interesting as it sounds to be involved in that? And then I guess just tangentially, the NHS in terms of how it's perceived outside the country by Americans, by other people in the world, uh, is a real mixed bag. A lot of the negative reporting in the UK leaches out to create um, impressions, which are not always positive about what's going on with healthcare in the UK, but sometimes misguided, shall I say gently. Um, how do you feel about it? Well, so if we start with our future health, and then I'll talk a bit about the NHS. Yeah. So our future health, again, I got connected with our future health by this exact network that I was just referencing before, the exact group of people who I've, I've been talking to about different opportunities know that I'm very passionate about data. And, you know, part of this is knowing what you love and, and publicizing what you love. I love the use of data to solve problems in healthcare. That's my thing. And that's the one thread that's kind of gone through all of my different jobs, my boards and everything. So our future health is just the fabulous manifestation of the use of data to solve problems, right? Our future health is going to be the largest ever health research program in the world utilizing data from approximately 5 million people in the, in the UK to try to look at how we can better manage and prevent bad health rather than waiting until people get diagnosed and, and treating them at that point. And it's gonna be a, a world leading resource for both academics, uh, for commercial researchers to actually do something with. So when I use data today, I'm using claims data in the United States. Claims data is developed for a financial system to pay, to pay bills. That's why claims data exists. So it's useful data, but its purpose for being is not medical. Our future health has a sole purpose of medical focus, collecting mm -hmm. the right data so that we can identify people and their conditions and help them sooner, that we can create a resource where we can recontact people and ask them if they wanna get involved within clinical trials that would benefit them. And it's gonna be representative of the UK population, which most, you know, there's, there's been some great projects in the UK, but most of them aren't fully representative of the population. So when somebody described this to me as a concept in the way that I've just described it, I thought well, that's really interesting because a lot of things I've struggled with in my life using data for commercialization and for, for clinical trial recruitment have had limitations and that limitation won't exist here. The reality of it, when you get into it and you start looking at it and getting involved with it, is it's way better than they even explained it to me, right? I mean, I, I think I'm one of the most optimistic people about this data. And it, it, it sort of links to what you were saying before. So people working 
within the our future health and around it can see all the problems i can see all the opportunities right i mean there's, mm. there's operational issues to to solve every day in everything that we do but we will solve them because that's what humans do however when solved it's going to create this absolutely world-leading fantastic resource that is going to make a real difference in healthcare and and what more could you have than to be involved with something like that and and, and particularly the early stages that we're at so so that's really how I got involved with it. And that's why I just absolutely love it. It's been everything I, I thought it would be and more. Now, of course, there's a linkage between that and the NHS because there will be NHS data that's available in order to you know, provide a, a greater context for what we're seeing in the questionnaires and the interviews and the, and the samples that we're collecting from people. And I think you, you asked the question about how the NHS is perceived, I, I, I think, and I'm going to say this with all due respect, the, the UK is its own worst enemy when it comes to talking about a lot of these things. There's clearly issues with the NHS, right? There's issues with everything, and, 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 I, and I get that. But there's also some really fantastic things that the NHS has done and will do. And I think we, as a British population, have a little bit of a tendency to do two things, one of which is to be a little bit humble and also to be a little bit negative, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and here's what it is. I'm not. I'm not sort of criticizing anybody, but there's so much great stuff being done in the UK, and I don't know that people are sort of hearing about it because we tend to sort of downplay it. So if you're in any social situation with people, and you're chatting about things. The first thing we'll raise is all the negatives, and then we'll, you know, we'll get to the positives, but we'll get to them later. And for me, living outside of the US now. I feel I can kind of look in and, and, and see a lot of this great stuff, but think, you know, are, are we doing the best we can to, to, to make that clear to the world? So I, I'll use a, a sort of analogy. I was doing a, a training program uh, about a month ago where I was giving two versions of my resume, right? I was giving the very collaborative version of, I've had these jobs, people have helped me along the way. I've been very lucky with who I've hired. And I did the version of, I am so awesome. I personally have done all these great things. And it was interesting at the end of it because the younger folks were fine with it and they so totally got the point. Some of my older colleagues said, I really prefer the person that you described in the collaborative. And it's like, yes, yeah, so do I, but, but I'm not looking for friends. I'm looking for a job when I put my resume out. It's kind of the same with the UK and how we talk about the things that we do with the UK. It's nice to be humble and not boastful. But we want to attract scientific innovation and, and investment into the UK. We have to talk about the great things that we're doing in order to do that. And we may feel you know, nicer when we're more humble about it, but it's not going to bring in the investment that will drive a lot of these programs forward. So I'd love for us to find some middle ground about how we talk about the things that are going on in the UK in the same way that other countries do it and manage to attract, I think, better investment and, and and folks to actually work on those i'd love to see us get there i really would which sort of nicely brings us to a sort of close to talk about bells and um i was struck when you were talking about your effort early efforts in edinburgh university to engage and to get them to think about things and a resistance being slow to see the opportunity uh, that has been the the constant journey with bells it's been can i get the uk to see the opportunity that this has that other countries like india particularly um is just a poster child and there was a big article in the economist recently just about this very subject of uh, a country benefiting hugely from uh reaching out to its diaspora uh which india did with the particularly with the silicon valley engineers to help drive enormous change on the tech side in india and i look at what the uk could do from a life science point of view when we have so much talent and i hope that what people in the bells community feel is a pride that they come from the UK or were trained in the UK, it's a badge of honour and see it as that. Some might call that a bit elitist. I prefer to think of it as celebrating where you come from, where you went to school and getting more uh, proud and championing what the UK has to offer. So it's about the UK getting off its high horse and actually 
selling on the global stage and not being apologetic about it. And then it's about embracing the talent that's overseas that is still British, in inverted commas, uh, and immensely proud of where it comes from and wants to give, I will use the word give back, but to give. Yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of interesting because in a way it's, it's, it's very akin to these alumni communities that we have from our universities, right? We are all British educated life scientists. We have, we have stuff in common just by being that. So we are a community already, even though we haven't necessarily linked. And you know, the better your university does in its rankings, the better it is for you as a graduate of that university. It's the same with the United Kingdom. The better the United Kingdom does and is seen for its innovation and its science, the better it is for us who are all educated there. So we already have this network and community that, that should exist. Connecting us and, and utilizing those skills and talents to actually continue the process of driving knowledge, awareness, and, and, and action within the UK, I think is something that in a way should sort of come naturally to us. So I think if we can kind of think of it that way, because as I, as I described my whole journey, right, my whole journey is about having a network of people that have worked together for, for the good of each other. It's not a one-way street you have to give, you have to get. And when we do that, really great things happen. So, you know, I am here sitting on, as you mentioned, five boards. I'm sitting on five boards because I've had a fantastic network of people helping me and supporting me to get to that place. I feel when we, when we look at the UK situation and we look at, you know, how people can, I think, both publicize how great the UK is, but also get involved in making it greater, there's a lot of really fantastic things can happen with that. And so, you know, I feel with the, with, bells that there's a great opportunity for us to do something that's really productive to help the, com the, the country and the companies that have supported us to this point. So, you know, I, I feel really positive about the work you're doing. I, I would say, though, that there's the natural British suspicion. The, the first time even when you reached out to me, I was thinking, well, what does he want? Well, you know, because that's how we think. And it wasn't until I met you and got to know you a little bit in our past couple of meetings of that, that I've really understood your motivations and what you're trying to do, which for me is really aspirational. It makes me really encouraged about what we actually can do when we get people working together. Yeah. We could go on nattering for another hour, but I'm afraid we have to close. Uh, Gillian, that's been fantastic. Um, I hope everyone else enjoys it. Um, thank you, and I hope we will find an opportunity to do it again soon. Sounds fantastic. It was great talking to you, Nigel. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.